This evening within the scriptures, we would direct your attention to Micah chapter 5 in your pew Bible. Uh, You can find that on page 1074. We'll read the chapter in its entirety, but then this evening we'll consider especially verses 10 through 15. The word of the Lord as it came through the prophet Micah, we read from the fifth chapter. And the words of our text will be verses 10 through 15, but we begin reading at verse 1. Now gather yourself in troops, O daughter of troops, he has laid siege against us. It will strike the judge of Israel with a rod on the cheek. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathath, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. Therefore he shall give them up until the time that she who is in labor has given birth. Then the remnant of his brethren shall return to the children of Israel, and he shall stand and feed his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall abide. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth." And this one shall be peace when the Assyrian comes into our land. And when he treads in our palaces, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princely men. They shall waste with the sword the land of Assyria and the land of Nimrod at its entrances. Thus he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and when he treads within our borders." Then the remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many peoples, like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass, that tarry for no man, nor wait for the sons of men. And the remnant of Jacob shall be among the Gentiles, in the midst of many peoples, like a lion among the beasts of the forest, like a young lion among flocks of sheep, who if he passes through, both treads down and tears in pieces, and none can deliver." Your hand shall be lifted against your adversaries, and all your enemies shall be cut off. And it shall be in that day, says the Lord, that I will cut off your horses from your midst and destroy your chariots. I will cut off the cities of your land and throw down all your strongholds. I will cut off sorceries from your hand, and you shall have no soothsayers. Your carved images I will also cut off, and your sacred pillars from your midst. You shall no more worship the work of your hands. I will pluck your wooden images from your midst. Thus I will destroy your cities. And I will execute vengeance and anger and fury on the nations that have not heard. Thus far for this evening our reading from the Word of God. A congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, by way of introduction, if you allow an analogy from the realm of medicine, it is often said that if someone has cancer, that cancer must be killed. And if that cancer is not killed, then the cancer will do the killing. And so some of you have very real experiences Uh, with the drastic medical procedures that are taken to kill cancer in the hope that the cancer can be killed 
before the cancer kills. I would submit to you this evening that sin, sin is like a cancer, a spiritual cancer, if you will. And that within the soul of an individual person, but also within the soul of a Christian church, within the soul of the Christian church, sin must be dealt with and sin must be killed through the spiritual means of repentance, lest that sin kill the body. Now we come, I acknowledge this evening, to a solemn prophetical oracle that came from the lips of Micah. Uh, But as I used to say in my former congregation, I don't know if I've said it here, perhaps I did, perhaps I'm already beginning to repeat myself, Uh, when you preach through a series of a book of a Bible, I'm often reminded of the childhood song, Going on a Bear Hunt. Maybe the boys and girls of the congregation know the song. And you come to a river, or you come to a cave, and you can't go over it, you can't go under it, you can't go around it. You have to go through it. We have to go through Micah 5, 10 through 15, because it's given by inspiration. We have to go through Micah 5, 10 through 15, because it's given by inspiration, ultimately for the edification of our souls. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is indeed profitable in part so that the man of God might be complete. And so with humility and dependency upon the Holy Spirit, uh, we turn to the words of our text to consider this theme, the Lord promises a purging of Israel. Well, notice first of all the action in the purging Then secondly, the purpose of this purging. And then thirdly, the lesson concerning this purging. I just want to state from the beginning uh, that this purging takes place to save the remnant. The remnant uh, that were mixed within the corporate nation of Israel, more specifically of Judah. Uh, The exile here in the 8th century B.C. as Micah and also his contemporary Isaiah and others as they're laboring to faithfully bring the Word of God amidst many false shepherds who were crying out, peace, peace, when there was no peace. The Word of God comes for the specific purpose of saving the remnant. But in doing so, the Lord promises that He will purge Israel. And so first of all, notice the action is the action of the Lord and is the action of an elimination. If you just allow again your eyes to scan our text, you'll notice how frequently you see that phrase, I will. You find it in verse 10, verse 11, verse 12, verse 13, verse 14, and verse 15. And they all flow out of that beginning phrase, says the Lord. It shall be in that day, says the Lord, in that coming day that the Lord would act. And it's emphatic. The repetition is there for emphasis. I will do this, and I will do this, and I will do this. You know, it could have just said it once, I will do this and that and this other thing, but the I will, you might say, uh, is the rhythm of the text. And, and we, 
we can be reminded that our Lord God is a Lord God who works and acts. Uh, maybe we're familiar with the heresy of deism. A deism often, most commonly, used the analogy of a, of a watchmaker to describe the beliefs of deism that were very popular throughout the Enlightenment, very popular even uh, in the 18th and uh, 19th century. And deism, they'd acknowledged that there was a cosmic higher power. Deism acknowledged that there was a God, but it was a, a rather impotent God that they believed in. A God who, yes, maybe created, but then set things in motion and, and sat back with passivity just to watch as humanity propelled itself forward by evolution. Now, I would submit to you that if you ask the average man or woman on the street if they are a deist, I don't think you'll find very many who will say, yes, that describes my theological views. I am a deist. But I would also submit to you that by and large, our culture is characterized by the same notion as deism. Most people, unless they have bought into the lie of atheism, most people would acknowledge the existence of some God, of some higher power. But practically speaking, and may even theoretically speaking, uh, they would deny that that Lord God is a God who acts and who works. But the God of Scripture, the God of truth, the God of reality is the God of all power and is the God who works and acts continually. As Jesus Christ Himself said, the Father works and I work. All throughout, and we often refer to the truth of providence, but all throughout history, God is working, God is acting, and He comes to His covenant people in Micah 5, beginning at verse 10, it shall be in that day, says the Lord, that I will do something. And so let us continually be reminded that our God is not just on the bookshelf and not just on the museum display case, but that our God is enthroned in the heavens and that He works. Notice that this work is a covenantal work. Verse 10 uses uh, the Hebrew Yahweh, translated by all encapsulated letters. Thus says the Lord, the Lord, Yahweh. Emphasizing that the Lord has established a unique relationship with His people. In Micah 5, the Lord is not speaking about what He will do to the Assyrians. Now, certainly God works among the nations, but that's not what's in view in Micah 5, verse 10. The Lord says that He will do something in the midst of Judah, in the midst of the covenant people, corporately considered. And now theologians in the Reformed line have often made the helpful distinction between uh, the covenant considered uh, in its more narrow focus and in its broader focus, uh, whether that be uh, cl clarified and used of various terminologies of being in the covenant or under the covenant or in the sphere of the covenant. And we can discuss all of those theological nuances in another context, but just simply note here that the Lord is speaking to the covenant people broadly considered, to Judah. And the Lord says that He will do something in the midst of His covenant people. And that's because within the covenant, 
there are both blessings and there are cursings. Now, oftentimes, I fear that this is overlooked. Uh, But when you think of a text that we often use as a text of pardon, Isaiah 1, verse 18, 19, and 20, there the Lord uses covenantal language, and He speaks to Israel, and He says, come now and let us reason together. It's helpful to note that Isaiah and Micah are contemporary prophets prophesying around the same era. Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and if you rebel, you shall be devoured by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And so it is an action of the Lord, and it is an action of an elimination. The Lord speaks that He will cut off, or He will cut out. It's interesting, and you notice that that word appears there first of all in verse 10, uh, then also verse 11, and verse 12, and verse 13. It changes somewhat in verse 14 with pluck But that word cut is related to the word that is used for the establishment of a covenant. And so in Genesis 12, we have that well-known passage where God establishes His covenant with Abram, and the animals are cut in two and are placed, and the Lord passes through the midst of them. And so that is the common word used throughout the Old Testament to cut a covenant. And now the Lord inspires Micah to pick up that same word because that word can also refer to a violent act of elimination. Just like the surgeon's scalpel cuts out the cancer or the tumor in a desire to preserve the health of the body, and it's a violent act. It's a drastic act. And if you've kept your Bible accessible and close by, I would ask you to cross-reference to a passage in Jeremiah. And what we do, we're using Scripture to interpret Scripture, one passage to shed light in on another passage. So if you go to Jeremiah 34, verses 17 through 22, you'll see that Jeremiah says the same thing, or more Precisely, the Lord says the same thing through Jeremiah uh, that he says through Micah. Jeremiah 34, verse 17 through 22. Therefore, thus says the Lord, notice again, Yahweh, you have not obeyed me in proclaiming liberty, everyone to his brother and everyone to his neighbor. Behold, I proclaim liberty to you, says the Lord, to the sword, to pestilence, and to famine, and I will deliver you to trouble among all the kingdoms of the earth. And I will give the men who have transgressed my covenant, who have not performed the words of the covenant which they made before me, when they cut the calf in two and passed between the parts of it, the princes of Judah, the princes of Jerusalem, the eunuchs, the priests, and all the people of the land who passed between the parts of the calf, I will give them into the hand of their enemies and into the hand of those who seek their life. Their dead bodies shall be for meat for the birds of the heaven and the beasts of the earth. And I will give Zedekiah, king of Judah, and his princes into the hand of their enemies, into the hand of those who seek their life, and into the hand of the king of Babylon's army, 
which has gone back from you. Behold, I will command, says the Lord, and cause them to return to this city. They will fight against it and take it and burn it with fire. And I will make the cities of Judah a desolation without inhabitant. Solemn words. The Lord says to Judah, I will make your cities a wasteland. I will cut you out. And don't you just cry out, why? Why would the Lord do this? Well, thankfully, we don't have to guess. Uh, The text answers the question of the why as we consider it in our second point. Its purpose is in light of sin. The Lord is going to purge His covenantal people because of their sin. And so often when we think of any negative experience in this life, we do so separated from the reality of sin and of the impact of sin and of the accompanying evil. But if you notice, as you make your way through the text, the Lord is going to purge Israel because of their sin, more specifically their idolatry. It shall be, verse 10, in that day, says the Lord, that I will cut off your horses from your midst and destroy your chariots. I will cut off the cities of your land and throw down all your strongholds. Now the Lord, He doesn't just have something against horses or against an interest in horses, but rather these horses are referred to as instruments of warfare, instruments of military might. And Judah, sadly, had turned away from a trust in the Lord's provision and had gathered armies and had built fortresses. They had built strongholds. And the idolatry of Israel and of Judah was that they were trusting more in military might and in human strength than in the Lord their God. It is the sin of idolatry uh, as clarified by our Heidelberg Catechism uh, in question and answer 95. What is idolatry? Idolatry is to conceive or have something else in which to place our trust instead of, or besides, the one true God who has revealed himself in his word. This is what Judah had done. Oh yes, they had their Lord God, off to the side you might say, but they had begun to place their trust in their military strategies, in their cavalry, in their might, in their fortresses, in their political allegiances and alliances. And just notice the subtlety of idolatry as our catechism rightly identifies it. At first, idolatry begins to diversify trust, to have something alongside of the Lord in which to put our trust. And then that diversity gives way to placing our trust in something else other than the one true God who has revealed himself in his word. If you want to turn to Isaiah 2, uh, verse 5 through 9, you see that Isaiah also identifies the exact same situation uh, and condemns it for what it is, uh, idolatry. Isaiah 2, 
uh, verses 5 through 9. O house of Jacob, come and let us walk in the light of the Lord, for you have forsaken your people, the house of Jacob, because they are filled with eastern ways. They are soothsayers like the Philistines, then they are pleased with the children of foreigners. Their land is also full of silver and gold, and there is no end to their treasures. Their land is also full of horses, and there is no end to their chariots. Their land is also full of idols. They worship the work of their own hands, that which their own fingers have made. People bow down, and each man humbles himself. Therefore, do not forgive them. You see, the problem wasn't that Judah didn't trust. The problem was that Judah trusted in the wrong thing. And that is the death impact of idolatry. And the problem wasn't that Judah didn't worship. In many ways, uh, the passage that we read reminds us of Acts 17 when the Apostle Paul uh, walks into Athens and as he perceives that all men are very religious. All human beings worship. That's not the problem, a lack of worship. The problem is that they worship the wrong thing, that they place their hope, their trust, their confidence, and their reliance in things other than the one true God of heaven and of earth. Uh, And we need to be reminded, perhaps, of the character of our God, uh, that He has a holy jealousy And he will not tolerate when his covenant people begin to spread their affections to other things and to other people and to other places. He demands their allegiance, their soul allegiance. Just as in a healthy marriage, uh, the husband rightfully demands the affection of his wife alone, and the wife demands the affection of her husband alone, as they are bound in that covenant of marriage. And so the polygamy that uh, our culture is quickly uh, going to, and and such obscure things as open relationships are absolutely foreign to the understanding of the establishment of a covenant. And God is stirred in holy jealousy, and He sees what Judah is doing, trusting and relying in everything else except Him. And He says, I will come, and I will begin to cut out. Through the painful process of exile, through the painful process of affliction, it's summarized perhaps most potently in verse 14, thus I will destroy your cities. Imagine walking through Judah in its glory days. Just recently I read in my own private devotions Uh, where the Ark of the Covenant was brought in upon the conclusion of the building of the temple by Solomon and his beautiful prayer as it's recorded there in Scripture and and the sacrifices, uh, the number of the sacrifice boggled my mind. And and the singers and the joy and the beauty of the temple overlaid with gold, I can only imagine how it must have glistened in the sun. And then imagine walking through Judah after the exile as everything was burned, everything was destroyed, everything was wasted away, a ghost town of all ghost towns. And then imagine stepping back and analyzing, well, what happened? 
idolatry. Putting trust and placing affections in someone or something other than the one true God. And the Lord says, I will cut you off. And he says this because this alone produces the necessary attitude of humility. Idolatry always flows out of pride. Idolatry and pride, they're so connected together. And they're woven into the depraved heart. Men begin to worship the works of their own hands. And in our own day, we see that also. And we can search our own hearts. Men begin to rely or trust upon their own ability to speak persuasively. To speak in a most powerful way. To hold the masses in the palm of their hand. Men perhaps begin to trust in traditionalism or covenantal presumption. Why, this is who we are. We are not like them. Perhaps men, and we use the word man generically, human beings. They begin to place all of their affections upon the pursuit of pleasure. All let us eat, drink, and be merry. There we will find happiness and contentment and meaning in life. Or maybe it's success in the business world. Look at the empire that I have built. Uh, Look at what I have attained. And it's when you begin to have those thoughts that The sirens and the bells of alarm ought to go off because God resists the proud. He gives grace to the humble, but He resists the proud. And one of the most effective ways that the Lord transforms proud people into humble people is by this action of cutting off horses, cutting off cities, cutting off soothsayers, bringing us, you might say, to an end of ourselves. Uh, You can think of a few uh, biblical examples. Uh, One within the realm of the Christian church, the other outside the realm of the Christian church. In the Old Testament, you can think of Nebuchadnezzar. Look at the kingdom I have built. And there he is on his hands and knees like the brute beasts of the field eating grass until he's brought to humility. You can think of Peter. Lord, even if everyone else denies you, not me. I'm the super spiritual one. I'll follow you to the cross even to death itself. And then a few moments later, denying before a mere servant girl that he ever knew Jesus Christ. And Jesus said, Simon, Simon, Satan has desired to sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you after you have been restored. And so you might say that Jesus allowed Peter to fall. To a limited extent. 
Because Peter had to learn, as every single Christian has to learn, and every single Christian church has to learn, the lesson of humility. That in humility we would root out all idolatry. And I I say this, and and I assure you I say this most to myself because the danger is perhaps greatest on this side of the pulpit that some type of pride would begin to exalt oneself. The moment that that happens, you can be assured that the Lord's providential hand stands ready to strike and teach the lesson of humility, perhaps in a deep and a profound way. There Judah was boasting, well, thanks be to God that we're not like the northern tribes. We have our political alliances, we have our high places, we have our soothsayers, we have the objects of our worship, and the Lord says, I will destroy your cities, so that they might learn, and that we might learn, necessary and valuable lessons that we consider in our third point, condensed down to two lessons uh, that Judah had to learn that I have to learn, that you have to learn, that we have to learn, not just once, but continually, progressively. First is the danger of idolatry. One thing that is rather clear from our text is the danger, the spiritual danger of idolatry. And one of the most subtle things about idolatry is that things that are good in and of themselves, when misused or abused can become objects of our spiritual downfall. I mean, horses in and of themselves, uh, there's nothing immoral about a horse. They're, they're a beautiful creation of God. Their power and their swiftness, well, you can just watch them in action. Perhaps as those cutting horses, I believe they're called, as they work cattle, as they separate one cow from the herd, as they anticipate the movement of the calf and react even quicker than the calf acts, you can stand back and say, what a powerful creature of God. It's not that the horse is immoral, but Judah's reliance upon the fact that they were safe and secure because they had an abundance of horses prepared for war the idolatry. That's what sent them off into exile. Now, of course, uh, other things that are listed within the text, uh, cities in and of themselves are not evil. Uh, To build fortresses, uh, all of us, we do that to some extent, I I would dare say, although perhaps in Pella not, but many of us, we lock our doors at night. Uh, We take certain precautions, but at the end of the day, Our trust and our reliance cannot be in those things in and of themselves. Now, of course, soothsayers or any type of sorcery or any type of witchcraft, that in and of itself is immoral. But we are reminded of the deadly nature of idolatry. As Revelation 21 verse 8 tells us, but the idolaters shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone which is the second death. Well, I ask myself, and you maybe ask yourselves, where is the gospel in this passage of Scripture? The gospel is here. That if we humble ourselves 
and tear down whatever idols we might find within our hearts and cry out to the Lord God in genuine repentance and sincere faith. God gives grace to the humble. But tonight, let us be warned about the deceptive, deadly danger of idolatry. And not only idolatry, but also a lesson concerning the danger of society. And maybe one of you have a better word. I'm sure there is a better word for society. Uh, But here's what had happened. Where did this idolatry come from? In Judah. By and large, it came from the surrounding nations. Now, Judah, the covenant people of God, they had been planted there in the promised land so that they might be a blessing unto the nations, but they were reminded, they were warned not to adopt the practices of the surrounding nations. They, as the church in the Old Testament, they were to influence the nations, but not allow the nations to influence them. But what had happened was Judah had been influenced by the nations. And this began already, you can see, uh, in the days of the intermarriage between the covenant people and the Canaanites. And, and perhaps it's overly blunt. Uh, but what happened was the covenant people went out and they looked around and they saw attractive persons out in the ungodly nations. And they said, well, aren't these nice to look at? Let's marry them and bring them into our homes. And they did that. But the surrounding nations had their idols. And they brought their idolatry into the land of Israel and into the land of Judah. And idolatry, it works and it begins to work like leaven. It grows and it increases and it spreads. A little bit of idolatry soon becomes more idolatry until it was absolutely persuasive. And so we are reminded Uh, of the danger uh, of neglecting the antithesis. And if you pick up the the old Christian books, you'll you'll find much talk of the antithesis, that is, the the God-appointed separation, enmity between the church and the world. Today, unless I'm not reading the right books, you don't find as much of an emphasis upon the reality and also the necessity of the antithesis. Now, we're not talking about a a geographical antithesis. We're not talking about moving out into some isolated place, having nothing to do in any type of interaction with the nations. We're talking here about a spiritual antithesis. And so a lesson is, is that it is far more common, sadly, far more common that the world influences the church than that the church influences the world. And so you find the church, by and large, following the world in its quest for entertainment, in its quest for hedonistic pleasure. You find the church, maybe even on the Sabbath day, going, well, what is the world doing today? Oh, let us go and do that also. Well, what is the world watching Oh, yes, let us redeem that also and watch it. What is the world listening to? Oh, yes, let us listen to that as well. And you find it encroaching even into the leadership of the church. And I'm not speaking about this church in particular. But does the world have any 
any strategies for how the church can be more effective? It's all backwards. And it's the subtle, deceptive technique of the evil one to infiltrate the church. So let's ask ourselves in closing two questions. Are we being negatively influenced by the world? And then a correlating question. What type of influence are we having on the world? You know, we we pray much and we speak much about being salt and about being light in our neighborhoods, in our vocations, in our places of employment. Are we impacting the world more, or is the world impacting us more? Difficult questions, perhaps. Easier just to brush them off and say, ah, I'm not sure what he was talking about tonight. Let's get on with life. But questions that I believe are spiritually necessary for us personally to wrestle with because of the deadly danger of idolatry. Because God resists the proud. But let us never forget also that He gives grace to the humble. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, uh, we do confess as we search our own hearts that we don't have to look very far to find idols. The idol of our own self, the idol of our own concern, of our reputation, or of our influence. Uh, the idol of relying upon covenantal presumption. Uh, Lord, give us grace to tear down those idols and to sincerely and earnestly exercise repentance and faith. And in any areas where we have been negatively influenced by the world, we pray, Lord, for true, genuine reform. Reform of our thinking, reform of our affections, reform of our actions. But above all, Lord, we pray that you would give us the gift of humility, that we might think less of ourselves and more of you and especially of your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.